Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study from the book of Ephesians called Rags to Riches. Before we get to that, let me invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We would love to connect with you and your family as we worship together here in Fayetteville. On this week's episode, Pastor Kirk is sharing a message entitled Owner's Manual for the Church, Part 2, from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let's listen together. Well, we're in a study of the book of Ephesians. We've completed three chapters. The first three chapters of Paul's letter are theological, doctrinal in uh, nature. They are describing for us uh, the greatness of our God, His plan of redemption, how we were lost in our sins, dead in our sins, but we have been made alive in Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike. Out of the human race, God has created one new race of people altogether. And they're known as Christians. Not just everyone who says they're a Christian, but those who have been born again by the grace of God. This is a new humanity. Beginning in chapter 4, he tells us as a result of those great truths, this is how you need to live. In other words, that, that God's calling requires also a lifestyle from you and me, that we would live out what we have become in Christ. Uh, someone has said that chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians might well be identified as the owner's manual for the church. You buy a new car, you buy a new piece of equipment, you buy a new computer or a piece of technology. It always comes with an owner's manual to help you navigate uh, the uniqueness of maybe that vehicle or that piece of equipment. Likewise, the Lord's church to operate and to function properly and accurately and in a way that glorifies God. We need to follow the manual. And the manual is the same book as what gave us the gospel uh, that is our hope in Christ. And so we're learning in chapter 4 how to live as the church. Now I made a statement last week. I'm not sure how it settled in with you. Possibly uh, it did not uh, maybe compute initially or at least maybe did not find agreement with you. But I said to you uh, that, that you can't love Jesus without loving his church. You can't separate Christ from the church and say, I love Jesus, but I despise or hate or don't care anything about the church. That's a common statement today. It's a common belief among people today that you can have Jesus as your personal Savior. And you can just live like you want to apart from his church, apart from the organized church, apart from the body of Christ. That's just not so. And let me just very quickly, not to spend too much time with it, but review what we had to say. We actually went over to uh, Ephesians chapter 5 to this verse. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ uh, loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, we're going to, in a couple of weeks, we'll get over to chapter 5 and we'll talk about what he had to say to husbands and wives. But by lifting that one verse out, we get a very important truth that husbands are to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. So it begs the question, how did Christ love the church? I gave you uh, three examples. I could have given you ten or twenty, but I think three will suffice. suffice. He loved the church uh, steadfastly. He loved the church intentionally. His love for the church is not accidental. It is not reactive. It's not in response to. In fact, our love for him is in response to the fact that he first loved us. He is the initiator. He is deliberate. He is the one that chose to love us when we were most unlovable. And so he loved the church steadfastly. He loved the church selflessly. He loved the church, in other words, submissively. And humbly, we see him washing the disciples' feet. We see him humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross, Paul tells the Philippians. And therefore he says to us, Let nothing in the church be done out of selfish conceit. Don't act in your own best interest. Act in the best interest, first of all, of God and His kingdom, but also out of the best interest of others. Love the church selflessly as Jesus did. Then we said that He loved the church sacrificially. He gave Himself up as a ransom for the church. And so when you think about that, that He loved the church uh, steadfastly, he loved the church selflessly, he loved the church sacrificially. Husbands, love your wives in that way. But also we take that teaching and we carry it right over to Christ in the church. If Christ loved the church in that way, then I need to love the church in that way as well. Amen? You can't love Christ without loving the church. So we get this key truth. You can't love Jesus, let alone be like Jesus, without loving the things he loves. You can't truly love Jesus without loving the church for which he died. Now listen to me. We need to understand this too. That when we say we need to love the church the way Jesus did, we're not talking about the church as some kind of idea out there somewhere. Some kind of, uh, of big universal body, although there is one. The only way we can love the church is to love the church locally. The only way we can serve the church is to serve the church locally. The only way we can love Jesus is to love the church locally. The expression of the church where I am a member where I belong. I realize that, that Calvary Baptist Church is just a tiny, tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg. We are a part of the iceberg. We're a part of that church, that, that mass that is, cannot be seen, that's beneath the surface. 
but we are a part of it. And this is the part we are a member of in being a member of the whole. And so to love the church as Christ loved the church, we've got to love the local church with all of its warts, with all of its shortcomings, with all of its weird people. We've got to love one another. Say amen to that, please. All right. Now, you're in trouble if you didn't mean that because you just lied to God, okay? Amen. That is the truth. Now, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians might be identified with the word wealth. He talks about our wealth in Christ. He has lavished upon us his riches, the riches of his grace and his blessings. The second three chapters can be defined by the word walk. As a result of our wealth, then this is the way we need to walk. So let's read these first six verses of chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We'll stop our reading there. And we're talking here about unity in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right, uh, three points to this message. The need for unity, the virtues of unity, and the basis for unity. Last week, we covered point number one. What is the need for unity? Why does Paul, from a prison in Rome, write to these Ephesian believers and say that I urge you, I plead with you, I encourage you, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What's so important about unity? And I gave you two points. First of all, it is a calling. He said, God has called us to this. God didn't just call you to salvation. He didn't just call you out of the darkness of your sins into the light of forgiveness. He didn't just call you out of your miserable, dead, lost estate into life and light. Certainly he did all of that. But he called you to something more. Not just to a home in heaven someday, pie in the sky when I die. He didn't just call you to that. He called you to a way of life. He called you to a walk. The term in the New Testament walk always has to do with a lifestyle, a calling of God. There is a high calling, the Bible says, of God in Christ Jesus, that we would walk in a manner that expresses this new humanity that we are. It is a calling. 
In other places, as Paul writes, he talks about us being peacemakers. He talks about us being reconciled to God and each other. And thus, we are now, uh, we now have a ministry of reconciliation. We help others be reconciled to God and with each other. That, that this is the calling of God, that we live a life so different from the world. But also, we find that the success or the failure of our witness depends on our calling to unity. The success of Calvary Baptist Church as we seek to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world, understand that our success or failure in that, whether God will bless that or whether God will not bless that, has everything to do with how we live with each other. Jesus prayed for this the night before his crucifixion in John chapter 17. He said it twice, praying for future saints. He said, I pray that they may all be one, be unified. That they would be perfectly one, he says there in those verses in John 17. Why? So that the world out there may believe that God the Father sent His Son Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That the world out there may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Here's the point. If we don't live in unity with each other, the world will never believe that Jesus loves them. So I ask you, very practically speaking, with what you see of Christendom, of Christianity in the world today, with all of its denominations, with all of its divisions, and let's get beyond the denominations, because some of that is very legitimate, not to be united with those who are not preaching the truth. Let's look at just those who believe the truth and preach the truth. Let's use our frame of reference. Not that Baptists are the only uh, ones who hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ and preach the truth today. But let's think about just Baptists. That's who we know. And let's think about the divisions among Baptists today. Let's think about the way Baptists don't get along today. Let's think about the way Baptists split right and left today. Let's, let's think about the idea that most new churches, new Baptist churches that start, don't start out of a heart for missions and reaching the lost. They start out of a fight when this group couldn't get along with this group, and they go separate ways. And then they ask God to bless their message. And Jesus says, how can they believe, those that are lost, that I love them if you don't even love each other? So you see, the need for unity is great. Our message, our mission depends on it. Now oftentimes we get into the idea that, well, if we can just root this out and just root that out and just get rid of this conflict or, or get rid of that uh, uh, thing over there and not talk about it or whatever, if we can just get rid of all the reasons for differences, then we will have peace. Understand, peace is not a negative thing that comes and flows into a vacuum. 
Peace is only there when there are certain things present that drives out the division. Okay? Peace drives out divisive thoughts. It is not the absence of some things. It is the presence of some other things. This leads us to point number two, verses two and three. The virtues are the qualities of unity. What has to be present in order for a church to live in unity, the kind of perfect unity Jesus prayed for 2,000 years ago? Well, verses 2 and 3 answer that for us. He said, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those are the qualities of unity. Those are the virtues of unity. You remember last week that I told you that though there may not be any I in team, that I is right in the middle of the word unity. In other words, unity depends on I. It depends on me. It depends on you. In other words, unity will never be there when you look at the other person and say, if they would just get themselves right, everything would be good. Unity starts with you. It starts with you. And it starts with me. And we're given a roadmap here. We're given a plan for that. Paul tells us there are seven things you need to develop in your life. You need to pray for them. You need to work for them. You need to seek to develop them in you. And as you develop them in you, you will be an example to others. And God may even use you to help others develop these attributes, these virtues. What are they? He started with humility. You know what humility is? It is lowliness of mind. It is lowliness of mind. It is modesty. I don't mean low thinking. There's too much low thinking in our lives as it is. Amen? Too many thoughts we wish would just kind of flush out. (laughs) Too much low thinking already. But lowliness of mind. What is lowliness of mind? It is to think lowly of yourself? Well, yes, but Paul even clarifies that over in the book of Romans, I believe it was chapter 12. He said, listen, understand, you are not to think too highly of yourselves, but likewise, you are not to think too lowly of yourselves. Humility, guess what, is not to think about yourself. Quit looking in the mirror so much. Quit examining, you know, your navel so much. And all these these preachers that tell you, well, how does that make you feel? And all of these different Bible studies that says, what does that make you feel like? Listen, there's only about that much time you need to be spending examining your feelings. Examine the truth. Let your mind be filled with the truth. Quit interpreting truth by how you feel about it or what you think about it. Humility is to think mostly on God, but it is also to think on the welfare and the goodness of others. Love God and love people. Don't spend so much time thinking about yourself. Humility. Jesus, even in his dying moments, what did he do? He saw to the care of his mother when he said to John, 
Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Jesus was dying. Talk about humility. Selfless humility all the way into his last thoughts. He said we should have gentleness. Gentleness means meekness and kindness. But understand, meekness, which is not a desired quality in the world today, is a quality of Jesus and a quality of God's people. But meekness is not the same as weakness. He didn't say weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power that is under control. Power that is under control. Power that is subject to kindness towards others. Jesus had that, did he not? As the song says, he could have called 10,000 angels to come to his rescue. He could have spoken the word and absolutely blown away his enemies. He spoke a universe into existence. You don't think he could have shut Pilate up? But his meekness, his power under control, his kindness did not allow him to do that. Patience. He said with patience. You know what patience is and you know how we get it? You can't go out and buy it. You can't develop it. You know how you get patience? By enduring evil, by enduring suffering, it is the same as long suffering. Putting up with problems, putting up with difficulties, putting up with hardships without bitterness about it. Patience. Someone's, I had a pastor friend one time that used to say it this way. To be long suffering you have to, first of all, be long bothered. Now think about that for a minute. To be long suffering and to have long suffering, you've got to be long bothered. It means putting up with your husband when he acts like a jerk. It means putting up with your wife when she is just doing what she does. is putting up with those people in the church that if it weren't for the church and the Lord, you wouldn't even spend time anywhere near those people. Folks, understand, that's a part of the mystery and the power and the supernatural characteristic of the church. We'll talk about that more in a minute. It is the fact that God brings together in a supernatural way people that would have never gathered with each other in any other context but that one. That's supernatural. If it's something else holding us together, that's not supernatural. And that's not the church. And I'll talk more about that, as I said, in a moment. Patience, humility, gentleness, patience. Bearing with one another. I guess that sounds kind of like patience on steroids. I have patience with this person or these people, but man, I'm going to have to bear with them. You know what that means? That means not to just put up with them, but it means to suffer with them. Okay, It is to enter into 
one another's suffering. Bear with one another. The idea is not just that, okay, I want to grin and bear it and put up with you as much as you irritate me. It means that whatever cross you're carrying, I'm going to come over there beside you and I'm going to get my shoulder under that cross with you and I'm going to bear it with you. It means to carry one another's burdens. Okay, does, does that make sense? Not just put up with one another, but to carry one another's it's tolerance. And then love. This is the agape love, the, the word for godly love in Scripture. It is generosity. It is kindly concern. It is devotedness. It is to give your life away for someone else. Love. You need to love one another. Understand that most of these are all covered in the one another's. Love one another. Bear with one another. Okay, not only that, but write down eager and enthusiastic effort. He said in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that we would strive, that we would endeavor with all earnestness, that we would be enthusiastic that we would take the first step, that we would seek to maintain. This is what it means to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. You know what a peacekeeper does? Wherever there's a problem, he pulls back the rug, and he takes the broom, and he sweeps the problem under the rug and just ignores it, but it never goes away. The filth is still there. There are too many peacekeepers in the church that will not deal with problems when problems arise, that will not exercise discipline if discipline is needed. But the only way to make peace is to enthusiastically endeavor to not just keep it or sweep it under the rug, but to solve the problem, to solve the issue. It is to earnestly be a reconciler in the world. And then the other characteristic is peace. It is tranquility. It means every kind of blessing and good that it is a peaceful person that can help be a peacemaker in the church. Philippians 4, 7 refers to the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. There is a peace that can only be explained by saying that is the work of God. It is not the work of man. These are the virtues or the qualities of unity. I'm going to tell you, folks, if you can think back to any church conflict you've ever seen, any church problem you've ever been a part of, and understand, and, and I, I hate to say this, I don't want to bring up bad things, but I want to say now listen, folks, Calvary Baptist Church has ha had more than her share of these kind of problems. Thankfully, I hope all of that is in our rearview mirror. We met Pastor Dan and our shepherd leaders this past week, and we talked about 
some of the things of the past. And you say, why do you dredge up things of the past? All that's gone and the people responsible are, are no longer here or whatever. But listen to me, the answer to church problems is not, well, let's just all grin and bear it and maybe the problem will go away. Because in every organization, there are present the seeds of disorganization. It's always there. It's the nature of being human beings. And I'm thankful for the peace and the unity we have. And I'm not preaching on this, trying to solve a problem in our church. If you're a guest here, or if you're a fringe member that, uh, that's maybe not in the uh, the center of all that's going on, but you're kind of on the periphery of it. Understand, I'm not preaching about this because there's some kind of issues I'm trying to solve from the pulpit. I'm preaching on it because it's in the book of Ephesians, and we started in Ephesians, and we've got to deal with it. But it's also something that most, time, most of the time the church doesn't understand, the necessity of unity. But our church has had, has, has had some awful experiences in the past. And I want to tell you, for the very fact that God, and I'm going to say this because two out of three of them are not here this morning. They're laying out of church somewhere else on vacation, I think. But God has given this church three shepherd leaders, Justin Swope, David Bentley, and David Cook, that walked through hell with this church in years gone by. And the fact that they are still here is the showing the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. If they had done what so many others did to cut and run when the going was hard, then they would have been more the reason of why the church at large in the world, in America, is the way it is today. But they are here. And you need to pray for those three men. You need to pray. Not only those three, but Pastor Dan. His dad, his father, was a deacon in the deacon body that went through that as well. And the fact that Pastor Dan would desire to be here at this church and serve this church, I want to tell you, that's the supernatural work of God in a man's life. You need to pray for these men every single day. You need to look to them for leadership. Several of you also experienced those hard times. The fact that you are here is not just because you're a stubborn, hard-headed person that couldn't go anywhere else. You're here because God kept you here. Because God is doing a supernatural work in your life. And because we are seeking to build a church on the right kind of values, on the right kind of truth of God's Word, on the right kind of structure in some cases, that those kinds of experiences will never happen again. That when there is conflict that we will deal with, it, we will deal with it biblically. We will not deal with it by, by well, whatever other means. We'll deal with it according to the Word of God. You see, the virtues... Each of these virtues are a necessity. Humility is needed because pride always insists on having its own way. Gentleness is needed because anger always offends 
and harms others. Patience is needed because we cannot control the actions of others. We cannot control the actions of God. So we need patience. Tolerance is needed because everyone has weaknesses. Love is needed because it is the oil that lubricates all the other virtues. Eagerness and enthusiasm are needed because these things don't just happen. Unity doesn't just happen. It doesn't get sucked into a vacuum where you've removed all the problems. Unity is when the people get serious about their walk with God and their service to God, and the unity drives out the differences. We need an eagerness and enthusiasm for that. Peace is needed. Because unity cannot truly exist without God's people being united by the peace that surpasses all understanding. Let me very quickly give you a third point. The basis of unity. The basis. We looked at the necessity of unity, the need for it, the virtues of unity. What is the basis of our unity? Let me ask you, what is it that, that is the basis for our unity, these 60 or so people right here today? What is the foundation for our unity? Oftentimes we'll name things that are important, but we'll miss what is truly the foundation. He gives it to us in verses 4, 5, and 6. And he says, There is, not there shall be, not there can be, not there might be, but there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. These seven things are the foundation of our unity. One body, that is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. If you are uh, grown up and maybe nurtured in missionary Baptist uh, roots like I am, you're very uncomfortable saying that this is the church. But if you read the New Testament, you have to agree that one body, the bride and church of Christ, this is all one and the same the body of believers in the world. There is one body, not two, not three. There's one. There is one spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit. We're not talking here about an attitude. We're talking about a person. There is one spirit, and that one spirit dwells in the heart and life of every true believer. One body, one spirit, one hope, one hope. And he says to us that, that that hope belongs to our call. Way back in verse 1, remember? You have a calling from God. Part of that calling is that there is a hope for you. And the word hope in the New Testament means confidence, something that we're sure of. What is our hope? Our hope is what we have in Christ and the gospel. It is our confidence of who we are in Christ and where we're going when we die. There is one Lord. This is the word that is re always referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. One Lord, that's Jesus Christ, 
our Lord and Savior. One faith. Now, faith can be an attitude of trust and reliance, but there's another definition for faith, another use in the New Testament. It talks about the faith, meaning the body of truth that we have in Scripture. There is one faith. There is one body of truth. Now, listen to me. The Muslims have their faith, but it's not based on truth. It's based on lies. Far Eastern religions have their faith, but it's not based on the gospel and on the truth of God. It is based on man's ideas. There's only one faith, the Bible says right here, and one true faith, and it is the Word of God. It is the body of truth of God's Word. Now listen to me. Let me just tell you, it's not your truth in whatever it means to you. The worst question that could ever be asked in a Sunday school class or a life group is, what does this truth mean to you? What does this verse mean? It doesn't matter what it means to you. It means what it means to God. And that's what matters. And that's all that matters. And it's important that we bring our understanding and belief in line to what God intended, not to whatever we wanted it to be. Now that was just my little soapbox. Back to truth here. One faith. The truth taught in God's Word. One baptism, and again, we who have come from our particular kind of Baptist roots get very uncomfortable with this because we were brought up being taught that the only baptism the Bible talks about is water baptism, and that is a load of bunk. When Paul tells the Galatians, for it is in one spirit that we are all baptized into Christ, he's talking about spirit baptism, not water baptism. If it is your water baptism that baptizes you into Christ, then go join hands and hearts with the Campbellites, the Church of Christ, that believe that water baptism is necessary for salvation. It is not. Spirit baptism, the Holy Spirit immerses us into Christ. We become the body of Christ, a part of the bride of Christ, a part of the church. And when we water baptize someone, as we have here in, in uh, recent months, like Joey or like Caitlin, understand that that is just a physical expression of what has happened in their hearts when they were baptized by the Spirit into Christ. It's a testimony. It's a picture that's what it is. One baptism, spirit baptism. One God and Father. That's the only true Heavenly Father. Now, if you look down that list, go one more slide, Joey. Oh, there we go. Look at it. Three of them lit up in a different color. Notice this. Spirit, Lord, that's Jesus. God and Father, understand the foundation of our unity is the Trinity of God. They are three distinct, distinct personalities. Three yet what? Yet one. God is the perfect Trinity. And God, along with what else He gives to us, 
through our spirit baptism, through uh, the faith of the Word of God, through our hope and our confidence as we are one body in Christ, this is the foundation for our unity. Now, I know that our time's up, but I need to take just a few more minutes to show you what is wrong in the American church today. In the absence of that kind of unity, in the absence of a supernatural unity created only by God, we have created a false unity. A false unity. We have created an artificial connection between people. And we appeal to people on the basis of this artificial connection, on the basis of a false unity, not a biblical unity. What is it? Why do people choose certain churches to belong to? You ever thought about that? Why do they go to this church or that church or this other church? Let me give you a few reasons. One of those reasons that makes for differences among churches today is race. We still have a race problem in America. We've got white churches. We've got African-American churches. We've got Asian churches. We divide people by race. We have Hispanic churches. Someone has said 1030 on Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in the week of the average American. I would argue with that because I would say, well, the average American doesn't go to church anyway, so it doesn't matter to him or her. But for those who do go to church, we're still a very divided people by race. A couple of years ago, we had three African-American ladies drive up into our parking lot. My wife can, get, can clarify the story if I misstate it. But they were looking for a church to belong to. They were looking for a church to come to. And they wanted to know if we were an open church. Now my wife's first thought was open. Does that mean LGBT? What does that have to do with, you know? And what opened to them was, would African Americans be welcome to come to church here? Absolutely. And for a period of time, we were so blessed to have them as a part of our congregation here. I was so encouraged every Sunday morning that we would be. You see, if you go back far enough, if you go back far enough, Calvary Baptist Church once had in its constitution that we would be a white church only. And a former pastor, Brother Phil Meisenheimer, to his credit, one of the most important things he ever did at this church was to get that kind of devilish language out of our constitution. Race. But, but we don't, most of us, have a problem with any of that. Let me go to some other reasons people join churches. How about age and stage of life? Oh, well, our church is a church that, that's mostly made up of of, you know, young singles and, and young families. And so young families flock to that place. 
or our churches, this agency. I had a, we, we ate dinner this past week with a, a couple that helped us start a church in our living room in, in Waxahachie, Texas, a number of years ago. And they, after we had left that area, they visited another church in Waxahachie, Texas. And it's a church, the pastor's a friend, I know him, and, and he's a good man. And they visited, and, and, and they were told after a church by the pastor, you are welcome here, but you need to understand, you are not our target audience. Our target audience are young marrieds with children. Well, who doesn't want young marriage with children? But I'm going to tell you, I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't have that kind of target audience. He came to seek and to save what? That which was lost. And for a church to identify a target audience, I think that too is devilish. How about worship style? When we talk about worship style, we're usually talking about music. Oh, well, I don't want to go to some church that has that old organ playing or whatever or sing those old hymns, or I only want to go to a church that does that, or I want to go to a church that have, has some really contemporary music, you know, some, you know, some, you know what I'm talking about. In most of those churches, when they finally bring drums into the worship center, they put one of those cages around them. You've seen that, haven't you? You know, the glass cage. I had a guy ask what that was one time. We brought drums into the church. I tripped on some of those things. We swept, we swept too many things under the rug around here. I had an old gentleman that hated drums, and he said, what's that cage up there around those, those drums? I said, that's not a cage. I said, that's bulletproof glass to keep you from shooting him during the service. <laughs> Music style. Man, that's what I want to do. I want to I go to church that's got my style. Of music. Or other kinds of personal preferences. Sometimes we choose a church on theological distinctions. I'm not talking about theological beliefs. We need to make that kind of choice. I'm talking about theological distinctions. I'm talking about majoring on minors. I'll give you a long list of that, but we'd be here all day. Sometimes people select their church based on the fact that it is a traditional church or a non-traditional church, or maybe on its Bible version. So we only go to King James churches. Oh, we only go to churches that don't use the King James or whatever. I want to tell you folks, listen to me. Now listen to me right here. This is what's so important about this and why I said what I said while I go about our shepherd leaders and our pastors. You can build churches you can build big churches. You can build exciting churches and thriving churches on all those different kinds of distinctions. You can gather people around that love contemporary music and they can have a high-ho time every Sunday. And it can be exciting. There could be a little smoke going on and some, some lights, colored lights going on. And it can be the place to go to church. But I want to tell you something. There's nothing supernatural about building a church 
on people who like the same kind of music. There's nothing supernatural on building a church on people who like to worship a certain way. There's nothing supernatural about having a target audience and designing all of your ministry and all of your strategy to reach those certain segment of people. There's nothing supernatural about that. Businesses have successful business models using all of those things every day. And it's nothing but the arm of the flesh. But when people come together who have different music preferences and have different ideas of ministry strategies and the way to do church, if people come together of all ages, the youngest of the young, the oldest of the old, if people come together of different races and different backgrounds, and if people are only looking because they didn't like something that happened in the last church they belonged to or because maybe the church hurt them. So I'm going to go somewhere where I'll never be hurt again. I'm going to tell you, that is nothing, there's nothing supernatural or the work of God about that, no matter how well intended that it is. It's not the hand of God. All of those things, by identifying we're seeker-sensitive, we're seeker-oriented. We're seeker-driven. We're emergent. We're missional. We're purpose-driven. We're traditional. We're contemporary. We're a cowboy church. Or we're a this kind of church or that kind of church. That is nothing but the arm of flesh trying to do the work of God. And it is not of God. And if God does save people and does bless people, it is nothing but the kind graces of God. But all it is for everybody else is building up me church. Church like I like it. Church that makes me happy. Church that serves me. Church that is the way I think it ought to be. And I'm going to tell you that is not the work of God. It is not the will of God. It is not the way of God. And it is not the walk described in the New Testament. Now there are reasons for changing churches. But I'm going to tell you at least 9 out of 10 of the reasons people give are not legitimate according to the Word of God. It's a culture of church shopping and church hopping. And the, the answer is, if we would go back and if we would look at those characteristics, the attributes of what it means to walk in love and to walk in unity, and if I would develop those, and if you would develop those, and if you would develop those, guess what? There would almost never be a reason why any of us would be looking for somewhere else to go to church, or how we would be dividing from each other in a time of difficulty. Divisions and strifes would cease. Well, I hope you recognize that the American church is in trouble. Churches are shallow in their knowledge of the word, divided in their fellowship with one another, and in rebellion to their Lord and Savior. The American church today is a fragmented, divided, compromised, 
church, and it is in decline in its influence. Its lack of unity has caused it to lose the power of its message and its mission. What a great time to be alive. What a great opportunity we have to be the true people of God. I'm going to tell you, I've been trying to think of ways that would cause Calvary Church to stand out against all the backdrop of the other churches in Fayetteville. I thought my best idea was this. We could label ourselves as a boutique church. You know, if it's boutique, it is small, it is unique, and it really ministers just to you. But somehow God hadn't let that settle into my heart as being a good idea. Maybe, just maybe, if we would walk according to the calling that we have from God, that we would walk in unity, in a love that they don't see anywhere else. Not a love of preferences, but a love of Christ and one another. I believe we will make a difference in our world. The world is starving to see the real deal. Let me close as our musicians come. Let me read this passage, these six verses to you. Once again, as I did a few weeks ago, out of the message, the message is a paraphrase of scripture by Eugene Peterson, a theologian. Listen to how he how he rewords the truths of these verses. In light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline. Not in fits and starts, but steadily. Pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love. Alert at noticing differences. And quick at mending fences. You are all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. With oneness. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. May the power of it change our lives forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. 
We meet for worship at 10.30 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.